The first two witnesses at the January 6th committee hearings broadcast live last night included a U.S. Capitol Police officer who was trying to hold back the crowd the day of the attack and help her police colleagues. I was catching people as they fell. It was carnage. It was chaos. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, we'll hear from the documentary filmmaker who was also witness to the madness. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin is running in the primary for a state seat in the U.S. House. Former President Trump has expressed his support. He did a phenomenal job and really became a MAGA warrior. And uh, to this day, that's what she is. More on that race in the cluttered field of candidates coming up. Inflation hits a new high and how media coverage of gun violence affects news consumers. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Inflation keeps hitting new 40-year highs, evident in the government's latest report on consumer prices, and that's certainly roiling U.S. markets. At last check, we see the Dow was down 880 points, 2.7 percent at 31,392. The Nasdaq closes down 3.5 percent, more than 400 points, and the S&P fell nearly 3 percent, falling 117 points. NPR's David Gura has been monitoring the markets. The consumer price index for May showed prices rising faster than Wall Street expected. Some economists suggested inflation could have peaked earlier in the year. It's not the case. This is the fastest annual pace in four decades. The Fed Reserve meets next week. It's expected to raise rates by half a percentage point, and it's signaled it'll do that at the meeting after that, too. Now, there's an expectation that because of these new data, the Fed will continue to act aggressively beyond that. NPR's David Gura reporting. The nation is taking stock of what we heard last night about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last year. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the House Select Committee made the case that then-President Donald Trump was at the center of an unprecedented assault on democracy itself, attempting to overturn the 2020 election and prevent the transfer of power. Congressman Adam Kinzinger, one of the two Republicans on the committee, says the investigation clearly shows that Trump was the driving force behind the attack. We see a, a president that increasingly becomes more desperate until January 6th is his last thing, his last opportunity, his last chance. Democrat Zoe Lofgren recounted testimony from the Capitol police officer who was knocked unconscious by the rioters. She discussed really... Uh, a war zone slipping on the blood of her fellow officers as she was injured and had a, um, a brain injury. The bipartisan committee will continue to lay out its findings at the second hearing on Monday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. In an interview with the Texas Tribune, Pete Arredondo now says he didn't see himself as the incident commander when a gunman entered an elementary school and killed 19 students and two teachers in Uvalde. Texas newsroom Sergio Martinez Beltran has more. Pete Arredondo has been identified as the person who led the controversial police response to the Uvalde shooting. But Arredondo tells the Texas Tribune he thought someone else was in charge and that he never gave instructions to delay a breach of the classroom where an 18-year-old gunman was shooting. According to the Texas Department of Public Safety, officers waited 77 minutes before confronting and killing the shooter. In his interview with with the publication, Arredondo says he intentionally left his police radios behind when he went into the school. He says he wanted both of his hands free to hold his gun. Arredondo says this decision prevented him from learning about the 911 calls coming from inside the classroom. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Sumner Tunnel in Boston will close to traffic tonight until early Monday as major renovations get underway. The shutdowns will be going on each weekend until February during the first phase of this project. East Boston City Councilor Gabriella Coletta says she's working with the MBTA and the State Department of Transportation to help people find ways to navigate the construction. Trying to expand the East Boston Residence Program where they have reduced toll fares up on the Tobin. Just trying to make sure that we have routes clearly marked for folks. We're trying to explore other options. Coletta says while East Boston residents are not happy about the inconvenience, they know repairs on the 87-year-old Sumner Tunnel are needed. Massachusetts Department of Public Health is relaxing its guidelines on mask wearing starting the 1st of July. Masks indoors in public places will be optional for most people regardless of vaccination status. Masks will still be required in health care facilities. Meanwhile, the number of Massachusetts counties considered to have high levels of COVID-19 transmission is down to just three. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention lists Suffolk, Middlesex, and Norfolk counties where it recommends masks be worn inside public places. 46 members of University of New Hampshire fraternity are facing criminal charges connected to an investigation into the hazing of a student. Authorities in Durham say they found probable cause that student hazing occurred in April at the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity. Student hazing is a misdemeanor and punishable by a fine. And the maple taps were flowing up in Vermont this year. The U.S. Agriculture Department is reporting Vermont maple syrup production hit a record high of more than two and a half million gallons. That's up a big 46% from the year before. The hike was due in part to the length of the tapping season this year. It averaged 40 days. Last year, it was only 28. More maple syrup comes from Vermont than from any other state in the nation. In the forecast, sure is pretty out there right now. Tonight, on the cloudy side, windy, cooler, about 60 for low. Tomorrow, partly sunny, highs around 80. Then for Sunday, some sun, some clouds, maybe a few showers Sunday afternoon. Gusty winds, highs about 77 degrees. 75 degrees now in the Boston area at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection held a televised primetime hearing last night. Committee members and viewers at home heard testimony from two witnesses who were there that day, starting with U.S. Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards. She was the first law enforcement officer to be injured in the riot. That sound from a video showing her being knocked to the ground by rioters who broke through a barrier outside the Capitol. Someone in the crowd slammed a metal bicycle rack into her, knocking her unconscious. And when she came to... What I saw was just a war scene. It was something like I'd seen out of the movies. I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. I was catching people as they fell. It was carnage. It was chaos. Edwards suffered a traumatic brain injury that day. During the same attack, she saw someone pepper spraying her colleague, Officer Brian Sicknick. 
I turned and it was Officer Sicknick with his head in his hands. And he was ghostly pale. And I was concerned. My uh, cop alarm bells went off. Because if you get sprayed with pepper spray, you're going to turn red. He turned um, just about as pale as this sheet of paper. I looked back to see what had hit him, and that's when I got sprayed in the eyes as well. Officer Sicknick died the following day. Since January 6th, some people have described the events as a protest that got out of hand. But there's evidence this was a planned attack. That evidence includes the work of the hearing's second witness, Nick Quested. Quested is an award-winning documentarian. In January 2021, he was filming the violent extremist group The Proud Boys and was with them before and during the riots. Representative Benny Thompson is chair of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. And last night, he said Quested's footage and information are crucial because... Our central question is whether the attack on the Capitol was coordinated and planned. What you witnessed is what a coordinated and planned effort would look like. It was the culmination of a months-long effort spearheaded by President Trump. Well, joining me now is Nick Quested. Welcome to All Things Considered. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. So I want to go back to January 5th, 2021. You testified yesterday that you were with the leader of the Proud Boys that day, Enrique Tario. You were filming him for your documentary. You testified that you saw him meet in a parking garage with the leader of another far-right group, the Oath Keepers. And I want to ask you, what did Tario tell you about what happened during that meeting? Um, well, uh um, Mr. Tario told us that he discussed his communications uh, with his friends and, and he was asking for some advice from uh, um, Kelly Sorrell, who's a, uh, a lawyer that has some experience in Second Amendment issues. Okay, did Tario mention anything, anything at all at the time that might have suggested what would happen on January 6th, the next day? No, there was no projection forward. The discussion was about where he was going to stay and about the security of his communications because he'd had his computer, his phone and his Apple Watch uh, uh, held by the um, DC police after his arrest for carrying the extended magazines into DC and for burning the Black Lives Matter flag on December the 12th. Uh, I mean, but in retrospect, he did mention that his, um, he was concerned for his for his boys and wanted to stay close to them and stay. So he chose to stay in Baltimore, which is about, you know, half an hour to 40 minutes north right. of DC. Right. Okay. Well, the next day on January 6th, you were filming the Proud Boys when they attended a rally in Washington, DC. They marched to the Capitol. What did you see once you arrived at the Capitol? Just describe it real quick for us. Well, there's two aspects for us arriving at the Capitol. First is at 10.30, we picked up the Proud Boys as they're watching down the, down the mall. And we are trying to cover it like a normal scene, like we're running ahead to get a, 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 a shot or to the side or even inside them. And we walk past the Capitol. And we walk past the Capitol at 11.52 a.m. And there was only one police officer on the barricades that subsequently are overrun by the protesters. Mm -hmm. We then walked around the Capitol and then we doubled back 
and they had lunch uh, at this taco truck, uh, food truck, uh, uh, there's a group of food trucks on Constitution. And then around uh, 12.45, we walked over to the um, peace circle and we stopped. And what was notable about that was there was this man called Ryan Samsel who had these white sleeves on and a T-shirt above his uh, this long-sleeved white shirt. Mm. And he puts his arms around um, Biggs, who's one of the Proud Boy leaders. And I hadn't seen this man before. So it was a little strange because Mr. Biggs, you know, doesn't seem like the cuddliest person in the world. Hmm. And um, and then we, I saw Mr. Samson walk off towards the barriers. I'm so sorry for cutting in because we have only about a minute left. But I, I, what I want to understand from your perspective, in your mind, were the Proud Boys simply there to attend a rally and things just got out of hand, as many of those who support them say is what happened? Or was violence the plan? What was your sense that day? In 50 seconds we have left. I don't know if violence was a plan, but I do know that they weren't there to attend the rally because they'd already left the rally by the time the president had started his um, speech. Um, you know, I think if you wanted to look to their intentions, you should look more at their text chats and their communications prior to the event. But from what I captured on the day, I, I can't speak. They, they were, there's only one moment where that that, that the, the sort of facade of... of of marching and protesting might have um, uh, fallen, which is there was a one of the Proud Boys called Milkshake, and Eddie Block on his um, live stream uh, captures Milkshake saying, "Well, let's go storm the Capitol." Which Nordine uh, Rufio, one of the leaders of the Proud Boys, saying, "You could keep that quiet, please, Milkshake," and 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 then we continued on marching. Oh. Well, I am curious because you've been a longtime documentarian. You've been in war zones. When you were there that day, how much did you fear for your own safety? How fearful, how scared were you? Well, I, I did get into, I, I, my camera was broken by a, a, a rioter and I did get into some scuffles. But when you have your camera, you have a function in this, in this environment. So you're not really thinking about the ramifications of, every, of, of what's going on. And, and normally in riot circumstances, the police are the adversary. And, in, and, and this time the police weren't pushing back. They weren't using water cannons or dogs or large quantities of mace and, and tear gas. The police were very passive and, and very restrained um, because I think they were so overmatched. They felt that any type of uh, pushback would have been, you know, catastrophic for them. And it ended up being catastrophic until they could hold the line at basically the upper tunnel or well, after they pushed back the protesters out towards five o'clock. Hmm. You had a chance to testify for something like eight and a half, maybe nine minutes last night. Is there anything you think Americans should know about January 6th that maybe you were not asked by any of the panelists last night? Um, I don't, I, I think the committee have laid out a, a very uh, erudite and uh, compelling roadmap to the case that they are now going to prove um, with, the, um, with their witnesses and with their investigation. So. I'd like to reserve that until after the committee has, has, has made its case, because I, I think that despite the um, 
the politicization of the process, I think the committee is is endeavoring to present the facts and um, and I'm, I'm interested to see how uh, that all comes together and hopefully mm -hmm. those present that presentation of the facts will enable uh, Congress to provide legislation that would um, stop this ever happening again. I'm curious how you're feeling inside as a journalist, as a documentarian, because now that you have seen the trajectory of events um, that occurred on January 6th and afterwards, does it make you think back to things you may have missed while you were following around members of the Proud Boys, things that you should have paid closer attention to? Do you replay things that you observe that maybe you interpret differently now in retrospect? Oh, in hindsight, you can always criticize your technique and your interview technique because we were making a very different film um, when we were interviewing Mr. Tario. Um, we were making a film about why America was so divided. So in retrospect, if I'd have known what I know now about the text chats and the interactions between the three strands of, of, uh, you know, of, the, of the Trump campaign's efforts to maintain uh, the President Trump as the president, I would be asking very different questions. So and I think I would go back and do everything differently. That was documentarian Nick Quested. He was one of the two witnesses who testified last night in the first of the select committee's several hearings to be coming about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the rising price of gasoline, groceries, and rent has pushed inflation to its highest level in more than four decades. Prices rose even more than expected last month. Checking business, Martha's Vineyard now has the highest price for regular gasoline in the state. Today's survey by AAA Northeast shows gas on the vineyard cost an average of $6 a gallon. The statewide average is $5.03 a gallon. Wall Street numbers are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. Well, the week ends with a big drop on Wall Street. The Dow lost two and three quarters percent, 880 points. It closed at 31,393. S&P had its worst week since January. It fell nearly three percent today to finish at 3,901. NASDAQ lost more than three and a half percent to close at 11,340. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. And MassTLC, the region's leading technology industry group and the power behind Boston Tech Jam and the Tech Top 50 Awards. More at masstlc.org.
We pulled out a beautiful day today. Cloudy skies move in tonight, though temperatures fall to about 59. Some gusty winds around. Tomorrow, pretty nice, partly sunny, highs near 80. Sunday should also be partly sunny. The chance of afternoon showers blowing us around. Highs about 77 degrees. If all things considered makes your commute more interesting, support it. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Here in this newsroom, we've been having a lot of conversations about our role and responsibility as journalists when covering horrific tragedies like the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo and Tulsa. We report the facts, but how we tell these stories and what details we choose to focus on That's something we wanted to spend some time talking about today. So we've called Danigal Young. She's a professor of communications and political science at the University of Delaware, and she studies the impact that news stories have on the public. Danigal, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks, Sasha. Your research looks in part at what you call the media's bias in favor of covering specific events and individual people instead of looking more broadly at what leads to tragedies like mass shootings. You call it episodically framed stories versus thematically framed stories. Explain the difference between those two. Uh, There was work that came out in the early 90s by Shanto Iyengar looking at whether or not the way that news stories are told could affect the kind of attributions of responsibility that viewers or readers might make. So if you tell a news story about individual people, individual problems, is it possible that you're actually going to encourage those readers and listeners to attribute responsibility and look for solutions at the level of the individual in the story. Let's take a real-life example. If we look at Uvalde, do you feel like that was covered more episodically or more thematically? I think it depends on what outlets we're talking about. I have seen a whole lot of attention paid to more thematically framed coverage that looks at the history of gun control in the United States, rates of gun violence broken out by state, etc. Uh, Those thematically framed stories contextualize what happened in Texas within a broader framework, a political framework, a cultural framework. That's thematic. However, as the story sort of began to unfold, and we did learn about failures at the level of the Uvalde police and the school police in particular, some of those stories really began to focus on the individual police, as opposed to thinking more broadly about gun violence as an epidemic in the United States. Although I say this as a news person, but the the law enforcement failure at Uvalde appears to have been so catastrophic that of course that had to be covered. That alone was a news story. So I feel that the media did both. It looked at the catastrophe of that individual case and also covered the broader issues that result in mass shootings in this country. And I would agree for those stories that tended to do both, that highlighted the failure of the police 
and continued to broaden the lens and highlight the fact that even if the police had responded the way that they were supposed to respond, it is likely that many of the children who died that day would have died that day. I think that's really important for us to understand that you can do both. You can cover the specific elements, broaden the lens, and help us think contextually about what this crisis is about. The question that I wish that all journalists would always ask themselves is, what is going to help Americans understand not just this day, but this broader issue? The news covers specific events. And I think we're pretty good about also covering big themes like the history of guns in the U.S. and the influence of the NRA. But I feel like there's a different problem, which is we understand what the systemic problems are and they just don't get addressed. So is there some middle ground that the media is helpless to do anything about? NPR may feel that you are doing both. But I don't know that all media outlets are doing both, especially when we're talking about the televisual media. It is much more challenging to do the broader kind of journalism that we're talking about because there is a bias in favor of visual elements. And legislation and history don't have a lot of visual elements. And I think that you're right. There is this sort of political intransigence, a lack of willingness, especially on the part of Republicans, to allow anything to move forward on this front. And I, but I think that that also needs to be addressed. That's part of the story. That's Denegal Young. She's a professor of communications and political science at the University of Delaware. Thank you. Thanks, Sasha. For more than a year, federal prosecutors have said the Proud Boys played a key role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Several Proud Boys have been charged with seditious conspiracy. They have pleaded not guilty. Well, at Thursday's hearing of the Congressional Committee investigating the attack, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney said intelligence had identified plans to, quote, invade and occupy the Capitol. And she signaled out and she singled out the group's role in those plans. In our hearings to come, we will show specifically how a group of Proud Boys led a mob into the Capitol building on January 6th. NPR's Tom Dreisbach has this look at the committee's investigation into this extremist group. On Thursday, Congresswoman Cheney suggested that the Proud Boys led that mob with the implicit support of Donald Trump. To build that case, she went back to the 2020 presidential debate when Trump was asked to condemn the Proud Boys and said this. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell Congressional you investigators I'll tell you asked a Proud Boy named Jeremy Bertino, a.k.a. Noble Beard, about that moment. Would you say that Proud Boys numbers increased after the stand back, stand by comment? Exponentially. I'd say tripled, probably. Then on December 19th, 2020, Trump tweeted that there would be a big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Will be wild, Trump tweeted. Here's Cheney again. The tweet led to the planning for what occurred on January 6th, including by the Proud Boys, who ultimately led the invasion of the Capitol and the violence on that day. Yeah, just for awareness, be advised, there's probably about 300 uh, Proud Boys. They're marching eastbound towards the United States Capitol. The committee showed footage of Proud Boys with the front line of rioters who knocked over bike racks set up around the Capitol and allowed a massive mob to surround the building. Police used flashbang grenades and pepper spray to try to stop the rioters, but they were overrun. The committee showed footage then of Proud Boy Dominic Pozzola allegedly using a stolen police shield to bash open a Capitol window. <laughs> 
Breaking that window open allowed the very first group of rioters to climb inside the building, forcing the panicked evacuation of Congress. A key question for the committee is were there more direct links between the Proud Boys and the Trump team? We've known that former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio has been close to Roger Stone, a longtime Trump advisor. Two days before the riot, Tarrio was arrested in D.C. for burning a church's Black Lives Matter flag. And Trump advisor Steve Bannon said on his podcast that he tried to help get Tarrio out of jail ahead of January 6th. I don't know those guys really, but I got to tell you, we put calls out last night trying to put bail up for the guy. It's just not acceptable. Guy it's comes to ta- guy comes into town to protest. I mean, come on. Stone has denied all wrongdoing. Bannon's spokesperson and his attorney did not respond to our requests for comment. Thursday's hearing did not provide new evidence of possible links. On CNN, Jake Tapper asked committee chair Benny Thompson if that was coming. Are there going to be witnesses that describe actual conversations between these extremist groups and anyone in Trump's orbit? Yes. There will be? Yes. Congressional investigators interviewed leaders of the Proud Boys and the extremist group The Oath Keepers under subpoena. When the committee continues its televised hearings next week, we may hear exactly what they had to say. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Boston Celtics versus the Golden State Warriors in Game 4 of the Best of 7 series. Celts have a 2-to-1 advantage, 9 p.m. start time. So the city of Boston is hosting a free public viewing party for anybody who wants to watch the Celts in Game 4 tonight. It'll be in Copley Square. Again, the game starts at 9 o'clock. And the Red Sox are in Seattle for a three-game series with the Mariners. 10-10, first pitch. Rich Hill is on the mound for Boston. It's 4.30. Reverend Willie Bodrick II is the head pastor at 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury. And we had been talking about leading with the tradition of the black church behind him. And then I asked him, okay, but what about where you buck the traditions? Bringing a vaccine clinic to 12th Baptist Church, despite much well understood skepticism and concern in his parish community, which is a predominantly black parish community, about trusting the healthcare system. We did a fireside chat. Uh, you know, I don't have a beautiful studio, but I have a beautiful sanctuary where we brought in physician to kind of answer live all the questions. And we stayed there as long as we needed to, to correct any misinformation, to deal with the distrust and to acknowledge the pain. Understanding people's trepidations strengthens us across our communities. My name is Tiziana Deering. I'm the host of Radio Boston. Give monthly at WBUR.org, and thank you. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The House Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol building a year and a half ago has presented its first in-depth account, tying then-President Donald Trump to what happened during the January 6th insurrection that left five people dead in the immediate aftermath. Republican Representative Liz Cheney says over multiple months, Trump oversaw and coordinated a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of power. NPR's Ron Elving. This hearing was in the better traditions of congressional hearings. It was a deliberate and rational effort to persuade. And who is persuadable at this point? Well, polls tell us that there are People who are unsure what was going on on January 6th, not certain what the role of former President Trump might have been. So there are open-minded people who can be reached. This was the first in a series of public hearings on the probe. The next is set for Monday. 
Ukraine's defense minister says many NATO countries are generously supplying weapons, but says it's still not enough to counter Russia's heavy military or artillery. NPR's Greg Myrie reports he also says Ukraine is losing ground and about 100 soldiers a day. Russia is making advances in eastern Ukraine because it has more firepower, especially artillery, says Ukraine's defense minister Oleksiy Reznikov. In a lengthy statement, he says Poland is now the fifth NATO country to supply Ukraine with howitzers. All these contributions help, he notes, but Reznikov adds, quote, it would be enough for a victorious defense against any army in Europe, but not against Russia. Ukrainian leaders declined to talk about their casualties for much of the war, but the defense minister became the latest to provide figures. He says up to 100 troops are being killed and up to 500 injured every day. Greg Myrie reporting. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The ownership of an exclusive private club on Martha's Vineyard is pleading guilty to criminal involuntary manslaughter after a child drowned in its pool last summer. A manager for the Boathouse and Field Club in Edgartown entered a guilty plea on behalf of its corporation. A Cape and Islands district attorney investigation found the three-year-old boy was not supervised and camp counselors did not put flotation devices on the boy's arms. The club is prohibited from hosting another camp for kids over the next five years. It's also ordered to pay $100,000 to train lifeguards and instructors. Searchers are looking for the body of a missing six-year-old boy in the Merrimack River. Last night, the boy and his seven-year-old sister went into the water in Newburyport. The girl was saved. Their mother died trying to save them. The girlfriend charged in the death of an off-duty Boston police officer is pleading not guilty to second-degree murder. 32-year-old Karen Reed was arraigned today. Prosecutors allege Reed hit John O'Keefe with a car outside a home in Canton during a January storm and left him lying in a snowbank. She later found him unconscious, she said. The court set bail at $100,000. For the first time, the state of Maine is deploying buoys to detect sharks. Maine had its first fatal shark attack on record nearly two years ago. The ocean buoys will link the Sharktivity app, which also tracks shark sightings along the Massachusetts coastline. The buoys use receivers to identify a nearby shark that's wearing an acoustic tag. And the music festival season is getting underway, and one described as a black wonderland by its founder happens tomorrow in Franklin Park. Park. Boston Art and Music Soul Fest, better known as BAMS Fest, is preparing to host its most eclectic lineup yet. WBR's Lauren Williams has more. When founder Catherine Morris returned to Boston after college, she saw a gap in the city's music festival scene. So she dreamed up a festival that puts a spotlight on Black Boston artists. Morris says that this weekend's theme is epic joy. You have music. There's all this artist discovery. There's folks you may know. There's folks you may not know. There might be genres of music you never listened to before. But you're going to experience it here at Bands Festival. The festival in Franklin Park is free, with live music from Latin jazz to hip-hop and R&B and food from across the African diaspora. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. 75 degrees now in Boston. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. 
Bright skies continue into the evening, then clouds collect tonight. Temperatures about 60. Tomorrow, partly sunny, up around 80. Sunday, the chance of afternoon showers, but otherwise partly sunny in the upper 70s for a high. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIQ.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Inflation is not getting any better. In fact, it seems to be getting worse. Prices in May were up 8.6% from a year ago, according to data released today by the Labor Department. That's the sharpest increase since 1981. People are having to shell out more for just about everything, including necessities like food and rent. And the average price of gasoline nationwide is closing in on $5 a gallon. It's already above that in many parts of the country, including here in L.A. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. All right. So for a moment, it did look like the worst of all this inflation was behind us. But these new numbers obviously tell a different story. How are people you're talking to coping with these high prices? In some cases, they are becoming more careful shoppers. I spoke today to Jackie Upshaw. She's a retired Defense Department worker in Las Vegas. She told me there's no more impulse buying at the grocery store for her. Uh, she makes a list before she goes. She compares prices at several different stores. Upshaw also told me about commiserating with another customer in front of the refrigerator case when they saw what a dozen eggs are selling for these days. The young lady was standing there. She was like, oh, my God. She said the last time they was on sale, she said, I didn't want to have too many. But the next time I see them on sale, she said, I'm going to get a whole bunch of them. And I was like, oh, you two sisters, that's going to be me. <laughs> Egg prices are up 32% over the last year. That reflects in part the rising cost of chicken feed and the culling of some laying flocks due to bird flu. But you know, Elsa, groceries overall are up more than 10%, so this inflation is widespread. Right, and meanwhile, we're going to hit another painful milestone at the gas pump, right? That's right. The average price of gasoline nationwide is within a couple pennies of that $5 a gallon mark, and we're likely to cross that threshold this weekend. Just a year ago, gas was selling for a little over $3 a gallon. Gasoline prices have soared since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it's really taking a toll. Elon Blanc is a musician based in Boulder, Colorado. He and his bandmates are planning a tour of the Midwest this summer, but he says they may have to cancel some of the more remote concerts because it's just too expensive to get there. And that's too bad because this was shaping up to be a pretty good summer for live music. Yeah. Venues are booking and excited to book. A lot of festivals are back online, and, and it's just a real shame and, and a nail-biter that all of a sudden we have this new obstacle to deal with. Obviously, a lot of people are still traveling this summer, but airfares are way up, and mm -hmm. so is the price of hotel rooms. Scott, can you just remind us, how did we wind up with such high inflation? You know, for much of last year, policymakers weren't really concerned about inflation. They were mostly worried about the economic fallout from the pandemic and getting people back to work. They thought if they did that, prices would come down on their own. But it turns out inflation's been a lot more stubborn, and of course the war in Ukraine has poured more gasoline on the fire. 
This is really hurting President Biden's approval rating in a way that's likely to be costly for Democrats in the midterms. And unfortunately for the White House, there's not a whole lot that Biden can do about inflation. He has done something important, though, and that's to promise not to get in the way of the Federal Reserve as it works to bring prices under control. So how much longer do you think we're going to have to live with such huge price hikes? Well, it looks as though high inflation could be with us for a while. The Fed has started raising interest rates pretty aggressively in an effort to tamp down demand, but that's a process that takes time. And given how high inflation is already, the central bank may have to push interest rates higher than it otherwise would have. The concern is that in doing so, the Fed could tip the economy into recession. And that concern is definitely weighing on the stock market. All the major indexes were sharply down today with the Dow tumbling nearly 900 points. Wow. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Alaska has been a state for six decades. For five of them, it was represented in the U.S. House by one man, Republican Don Young. He died in March. Now, Sarah Palin wants that office. She's among 48 people vying for Alaska's single House seat in a primary tomorrow. Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports. In a race this crowded, name recognition matters, and Palin has it. Fans lined up to have their picture taken with her at a campaign rally in Anchorage that featured Donald Trump by telephone. She did a phenomenal job and really became a MAGA warrior. And uh, to this day, that's what she is. After she resigned as governor in 2009, Palin became a Fox News contributor and a reality TV star. But at the rally, Palin let it be known she's a regular Alaskan. She name-checked local supermarkets and, as she took aim at high gas prices, emphasized that she drives a pickup. My F-150, 140 bucks out there in Wasilla to fuel it up the Step 150, and it's not even the hottest souped-up model either, but uh, I know you guys, too, you, you see that every time you fuel up. For all her celebrity, Palin has what pollsters call high negatives in Alaska. Even some conservatives resent the national attention her campaign gets. But few doubt she'll survive the special primary. That's because in Alaska's new election system, the top four vote-getters of any party will advance. Also, this special election to fill the vacancy overlaps with the regular election for the next congressional term, with a lot of the same candidates. There's another conservative in the race with a familiar name, sort of. Nick Begich here, running for Congress for the state of Alaska. That's Nick Begich III. His grandfather, the first Nick Begich, was Alaska's congressman before Don Young. Nick III has an uncle who was a U.S. senator and another who's a state senator. But those Begiches are Democrats. At a candidate forum, Begich credited his mother's side of the family for his party affiliation. And a lot of people ask, well, how in the heck does a Begich become a Republican? Raised Republican by grandparents who are Bible Belt Southern Republicans from Southeast Missouri. Begich doesn't have Trump's endorsement, but he has substantial support from Trump-loving conservatives. It's become an Alaska parlor game to guess who else makes it to the final four. It could be surgeon and commercial fisherman Al Gross. I'm Al Gross. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. Gross highlights his support for abortion rights and favors more Alaska oil production. 
On the far left is a candidate named Santa Claus. How's that for name recognition? He looks like Father Christmas and serves as mayor of North Pole near Fairbanks. Years ago, he changed his legal name to Santa Claus. He's one of the few candidates who unequivocally opposes drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I say leave it alone. Defend the sacred, protect the Arctic refuge. Claus is only running in the special. He says Alaska needs a full-time House member for the rest of the year, not someone still on the campaign trail. I'd be in there over the holiday season, and I think a lot of children would get kind of a kick out of it. Pollsters say there's a decent chance Santa Claus and Sarah Palin make it past the primary this weekend. Reporting from Anchorage, I'm Liz Ruskin for NPR News. The January 6th hearings have just begun, and the committee has already heard visceral firsthand testimony of the chaos that day. For anyone who didn't understand how violent that event was, I saw it, I documented it, and I experienced it. A conversation with one of the first witnesses, a filmmaker who was in the middle of the melee. Listen to the next episode of the podcast, Consider This, from NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Research shows the number of undergrads enrolled in college declined 9.4% during the pandemic. That's a significant drop. But one part of the education industry is bucking this trend. So-called elite schools saw a record number of applicants. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma with our daily economic podcast, The Indicator, explain. Jeff Salingo wrote a book about college admissions called Who Gets In and Why? And Jeff says that this situation has become a real haves and have-nots kind of thing. Meaning, if you're a have school, you're seen as elite, you're seen as selective. You have, in some cases, tens of billions of dollars in endowment. uh, That you have these brand names that cross the world. Those institutions are more popular than ever. Now, Jeff says this bump in applications is partly because a lot of these schools went test optional during the pandemic meaning they didn't require applicants to submit ACT or SAT scores. And so a lot of families and kids were like, why not take a shot? Prestige names have always had a lot of cultural cachet, but Jeff says that now in this moment, it's almost that some people have an ivy or bust attitude. They're seeing the value of higher education in those biggest brands. If I can't get into one of those biggest brands, then maybe it's not worth going somewhere else. And sure, sure, there there are lots of attempts to measure the quality of colleges through things like rankings. But Jeff would argue that these rankings, you know, the way they're put together doesn't actually tell you much about the school. So what is the high school GPA of these students or the high school test scores of these students or how much do we spend on faculty? These are all inputs. It says nothing to me about what you do when you take a freshman and where they end up as a senior and what is the quality of education that you're, you're giving them. As I often say, the job of Harvard is really to take a bunch of the smartest kids in the world every year and make sure they don't ruin the smart kids they're already getting. Now, now this idea that elite schools don't actually make high achievers, but just sort of pick them out of the crowd, has actually been studied by economists. There was a great study done by Alan Kruger and a few other folks years ago that showed what happened to students 
who got into elite colleges and those who got into elite colleges but ended up going elsewhere and maybe just a, a rung or two down the ladder. And what they found is that the outcomes were remarkably similar. Now, one important exception was for students from underrepresented backgrounds, like people who were black or Latino or first-generation college students. The economists found that those students did benefit from attending an elite school because suddenly they had access to this exclusive network of wealthy, connected people that their families often didn't have before. So elite education, this vehicle for social mobility? In some cases, yeah, that is true. If you can get a seat. This year, for example, some of these elite colleges only accepted four, five, six percent of applicants. One of my strategies for parents and students is to really think more broadly and for America to think more broadly about what we consider a good college. Yeah, rather than expecting kids to like hunger games it out over a handful of schools, there are probably some good options among the thousands of other colleges that are seeing their enrollments decline. Darian Woods, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Bright skies continue through the next few hours, then clouds should collect overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 60 degrees. Weekend should be lovely. Partly sunny tomorrow, topping out at about 80. Partly sunny on Sunday. We could have some afternoon showers. Temperatures in the upper 70s for a high. Sunset is at 820 in Boston tonight. That gives us 15 hours, 13 minutes of daylight. 75 degrees now at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Landmark College, for students who learn differently with online dual-enrollment courses where high school students earn college credits. More at Landmark.edu online. Celebrities telling you to invest in crypto. Got any thoughts on that? I think it's one thing if a celebrity tells you to buy a bag of chips, right? You don't like the chips, they're gross, fine. But when it's your money, it's a little bit of a different story. Yeah, sure is. I'm Kai Rizdal, and it is next on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Kenya is in the midst of a contentious presidential election campaign, and the number one issue on voters' minds, inflation. Price hikes have affected every aspect of life, including the street food. NPR's Ader Peralta reports from Nairobi. Javid Malonzi's mandazi stand is right next to the chicken shop. Every day he makes hundreds of mandazis. They're like fluffier donut holes that Kenyans eat on the go. Amid the bustle of the city, Malonzi carefully rolls out his dough. The price of mandazis has been one of the few constants in Kenya lately. They're still about four cents a pop. 
Uh, it is still five shillings each, but uh, it is so costly on their side. The price of flour and cooking oil have risen, so they have had to make some adjustments. He uses a sharp knife to cut two different sizes of dough. You see them different? Isn't this kind of yeah, yeah. It's a it's a big difference. Yeah. Before a mandazi could be a meal, but inflation means that the mandazis, while still delicious, have gotten significantly smaller. Have your customers complained that the mandazis are too small? Too much. <laughs> sana, sana. Sana, sana. Very, very much. The Kenyan government says that inflation isn't terrible at about 7%, but economist Exen Iraki says it's likely much higher than that. He notices it every time he fills up the car. I remember I used to fill my car with about 5,000 shillings. Now it's about almost 8,000 shillings. That's a significant very significant. I have to now to plan my trips when I'm going somewhere. Iraki says Kenya just hasn't gotten a break. It started with COVID, then the war in Ukraine sent oil prices soaring, and now there's a historic drought and an election season, which in Kenya tend to be violent and contentious and bad for the economy. It's a conference of, of three bad things, so maybe three big shocks to the economy, and everybody's feeling the effect. Kenyans are seeing things they haven't seen in decades. In April, there was a fuel shortage that kept cars off the streets. And at the moment, getting U.S. dollars has become difficult. And here, the government has a history of being hands-off. Kenyans are left to fend on their own. Iraqi says it's made them resourceful. They have learned that you're on your own. So whether COVID comes, whether Ukraine comes, we have learned to be on ourselves. And that has forced us to become very resilient. On the streets, Kenyans joke that cooking oil is so valuable, you need an armed escort when you score a leader. The mamembogas, the ladies who sell vegetables on the streets, say even the price of potatoes is up. Jane and Yiri says they come to Nairobi on trucks, and those trucks need expensive fuel. For, for a sack of potatoes, she used to buy them for 1800 Now it's 35 to 4000 She puts her hands up. What? can she do? So how are you living these days? Oh, we're not They're just surviving yeah. with those problems. They're trying to survive within those problems. It's a refrain I hear over and over across this city. We're not living, we're surviving. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Nairobi. Nostalgia is a powerful thing. So powerful, some people spend thousands of dollars or more collecting old memorabilia, including old PC video games. But recently, the tight-knit world of PC game collecting was upended by allegations that one of its most prominent figures has been selling and trading forgeries. Kyle Orland is senior gaming editor at Ars Technica and detailed this whole saga there. He joins us now to talk about it. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. So this scandal, it involves a man named Enrico Ricciardi. And just briefly, like, explain who he is and what exactly he's been accused of. Yeah, Ricciardi is a fashion photographer out of Italy. He's also one of the longest standing members of this niche community of high-end PC game collectors, been collecting since the 90s. And he was kind of considered an authority on these games, uh, the different versions of them, how to spot fakes. There are conversations where he has alleged other people of forgeries. But recently, and totally independently, two different groups of collectors started noticing some signs of forgery on games that they had gotten from Ricciardi. Huh, like, like what kind of signs? Like, how do you know when a game is fake? 
So some of them are pretty clear, like some of the disks, if you put them in and actually look at the data on that disk, it will have a cracked copy of that game where the copy protection has been broken. And there's actually on one of them, a loading screen that says presented by the data killer, which obviously an authentic copy from 1981 would not have. <laughs> right. Uh, there was another game that was on a cassette tape that's supposed to have game data, but instead it had just a bunch of random white noise and some sounds of people talking in the background. Huh. But one of the most telling signs of forgery actually is a watermark on one of the pieces of paper that one of the collectors received from Ricciardi that says Fabriano, which is an Italian paper company. <laughs> it was not exactly very big in the commercial world of PC game makers in the right. 80s. So uh, a little suspicious to say the least. So for the people who actively collect these games, are they actually playing them or they're just keeping them in pristine condition and not touching them the way like some sneaker collectors don't actually wear the shoes they collect? Yeah, if you're spending thousands of dollars on a 40 year old PC game, uh, it's not so you can play that game. All these games are available via emulation or other ways online or re-releases. You don't need to pay thousands of dollars for that. They want these games kind of as a totem, I guess, something that reminds them of the nostalgia of when they played them as kids, also as something that might appreciate in value for some of them. But as far as actually taking out that disc and putting it in an old Apple II computer, some <laughs> of them don't even have that computer anymore. So they just right. trust that what they get is authentic. It's a very tight-knit group of collectors. I don't think that trust will be going on much longer after this. So interesting. So I know that Ricciardi has responded to these allegations. What is his defense? Yeah, so I talked to him extensively over Facebook Messenger, and uh, he said basically that he was the unknowing victim in this as well, that he had taken forged materials and wasn't looking closely enough and had passed those on to other collectors. The other collectors I talked to really don't buy this story. They say that he was until recently, the authority on these things and should have been able to note any forgeries. Yeah. Well, have you been able to figure out like how much money Ricciardi has allegedly made on these forgeries? It's interesting because while he sold some of these games, a lot of them were in trade for other games. So what the collectors think happened is someone would get an authentic copy of a game and then make a forgery and say, oh, I have some extra copies I got on the down low. Would you like to trade? And then you trade the forgery and get authentic games from the other person. And if you do that enough times, eventually you have a very large collection of authentic games. So it's not clear that he was just in it for the money. He was a collector himself. So if these allegations are true, it could have been a way just to increase his own collection more than to directly enrich himself. Interesting. That is Kyle Orland, Senior Gaming Editor at Ars Technica. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was fun. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2022 Subaru Forester featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from LifeLock by Norton, 
reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. NBA Finals are back at the Garden tonight for a 9 p.m. show. Salts and Golden State Warriors play Game 4 of the Best of 7 Finals. The Salts have a 2-1 advantage in the series. And for the Red Sox, they're in Seattle for a three-game series with the Mariners. 10-10 tonight is the first pitch. 75 degrees now under bright skies in Boston. It's 4:59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Food and Drug Administration releases Moderna's data that show its pediatric vaccines appear to be safe, including for very young children. We'll hear from the pediatrician who helped decide whether the FDA should recommend it. My initial read of this suggests a reasonable safety profile, as well as evidence of inducing antibodies that can be protective. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, a Supreme Court decision appears to prevent people from suing Border Patrol agents for excessive force. One expert gives his interpretation. Border Patrol, by its very nature, regardless of what it's doing and where, is just a different breed of law enforcement animal. More on the implications of the ruling coming up. And happy birthday, Judy Garland, who would have been 100 years old today. It's 501 News Headlines and a deep dive for Wall Street. The numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. President Biden says it's important for Americans to pay attention to the public hearings about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And as NPR's Frank Ordonez reports, Biden called on Democrats and Republicans to unite and defend democracy. Before speaking at an event on inflation at the Port of Los Angeles, President Biden spoke about the televised hearings. He called the January 6th attack one of the darkest chapters in the nation's history. It's important the American people understand what truly happened and to understand that the same forces that led January 6th remain at work today. Biden said he had not watched the hearings, but called the evidence they presented a damning indictment of former President Donald Trump, whose supporters stormed the Capitol. Biden called it a brutal assault on democracy and the rule of law and added that the battle for the soul of America has been far from won. Franco Ordonez. NPR News, Los Angeles. Concerns are growing about a possible cholera outbreak in the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol, which is now occupied by Russian forces. Officials say 20,000 civilians may have died in Russia's siege of the city. NPR's Nathan Rott reports. The British Defense Ministry says Russia is struggling to provide basic public services to civilians in areas they've taken from Ukraine. Access to safe drinking water is inconsistent. Medicine is believed to be in short supply. And in Mariupol, the southern port city that saw some of the heaviest fighting in the more than three-month war, there is a risk, the defense ministry says, of a major cholera outbreak. Medical services in Mariupol are believed to be near collapse, the defense ministry says, and an outbreak of cholera 
from unsafe water and food would exacerbate the existing problems. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Keith. U.S. stocks closed down once again, marking Wall Street's ninth losing week in the past 10 weeks. The Nasdaq fell 3.5 percent. The S&P tumbled almost 3 percent, and the Dow finished down more than 2.5 percent. The steep declines occurred in part as a response to the Labor Department's grim report showing higher-than-expected inflation. NPR Scott Horsley reports. Annual inflation in May was the highest it's been in more than four decades. Consumer prices were up 8.6 percent from a year ago. Prices jumped 1 percent just between April and May, with the soaring cost of gasoline, groceries, and rent leading the way. Prices are up in nearly every category, including airfares, hotel rooms, and new and used cars. Today's report will only increase pressure on the Federal Reserve to try to rein in price hikes. The Fed has begun aggressively raising interest rates in an effort to curb demand. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Again on Wall Street, the Dow Industrial Average closed down 880 points. The Nasdaq fell 414 points. And the S&P 500 finished down by 116 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is offering updated guidance on wearing a face mask. Starting next month, masks indoors will be optional for most people, regardless of vaccination status. Masks will still be required for our health care facilities, our inside health care facilities. Also today, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is reporting that just three counties, Suffolk, Middlesex, and Norfolk County, are considered to have high COVID transmission, and it's recommending face coverings in public places in those counties. COVID vaccination rates in Hampton County are among the lowest in the state. Alden Bourne reports with just half the county in Western Mass vaccinated, there's a new effort to get more people protected. Black and Hispanic residents of Hampton County lag the county as a whole in terms of getting vaccinated. That's something a group called Men of Color Health Awareness, or MOCA, is trying to change. The nonprofit is holding an event in Springfield this weekend. UMass Amherst Associate Professor of Microbiology Wilmore Webley is the featured speaker. The goal here is to engage the community and to actually help to educate them on exactly what is happening, especially as it concerns long COVID and the importance of getting full vaccinations. Webley says because of the risks associated with long COVID, those who are fully vaccinated should still avoid situations where they could catch the virus. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. 46 members of the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity at the University of New Hampshire are facing criminal charges in connection with a student hazing. Police say they found probable cause that hazing took place at the fraternity in April. The 46 face misdemeanor charges. The national fraternity says it issued a cease and desist order to its New Hampshire chapter and is cooperating with authorities. Sure is nice out there this evening. Tonight on the cloudy side, windy, cooler, about 60 for low. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, highs around 80. Then for Sunday, some sunshine, some clouds, maybe a couple of showers Sunday afternoon. Gusty winds with high temperatures about 77. 75 degrees now in the Boston area at 506. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. 
and I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We begin this hour with two big developments in the pandemic. And for a change, both will probably be a big relief for a lot of people. First, the Biden administration is dropping the requirement that airplane travelers test negative for COVID-19 before entering the country. And second, Moderna says its candidate for the first vaccine for babies, toddlers, and other very young children appears to be safe and effective. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has been following all of this and joins us now. Hi, Rob. Hi, Sasha. Rob, first that travel news, that requirement to test negative before coming home or coming to the U.S. has been a big stressor for a lot of people afraid they're going to get trapped in another country. Why is the administration lifting that test, travel testing mandate? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And as of 12.01 a.m. on Sunday, travelers will no longer have to test negative to get into the country. The administration says that's based on the latest science and data that a negative test just isn't necessary anymore. And because we now have vaccines and treatments that can prevent serious illness and death, you know, we've seen that even though lots of people are still catching the virus, far fewer are ending up in the hospital or dying compared to earlier in the pandemic. What do infectious disease experts think about dropping the testing rule? Most are telling me they think it's the right decision, that it makes sense. It should make travelers' lives easier. You know, they won't have to go through the hassle of getting tested and worry about not being able to get into the country if they test positive. But the testing requirement has probably made some travelers more cautious when they're overseas, if for, you know, another reason they don't want to get stuck in some hotel room somewhere far from home. So there is some concern that this could lead to more travelers letting down their guard when they're out in, like, crowded restaurants and bars and, you know, museums or something like that catching the virus and spreading it on planes on their way home. My colleague Ping Wong talked about this with Dr. Lin Chen, past president of the International Society of Travel Medicine, who happened to be traveling herself in Rotterdam. Travelers who have increased risk for severe disease still want to be very careful and prepare for all kinds of potential exposure, potential infection. Because they might be more likely to end up sitting next to someone on the plane who's actually infected. For their part, the administration says it will monitor the situation and could reinstate the testing requirement if necessary. About that vaccine for very young children, Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, they've already been saying their pediatric vaccines are safe and effective. So what's what's new today? Right. The FDA released the details of Moderna's claims, which say that several formulations of that company's vaccine designed for kids between the ages of six months and 17 years do appear to generate sufficient immunity to protect them and don't appear to raise any new safety concerns. Now, you know, kids between the ages of five and 17 have already been eligible for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So the big news here is what Moderna says about its vaccine for the littlest ones. And the data indicate that, yes, it looks good. Do they say just how good? Moderna says two shots that contain one quarter of the dose that adults get given a month apart stimulates the immune system enough to protect kids as young as six months. And it looks like it's between 30 and 50 percent effective at keeping them from getting sick. Now, that may not sound all that great, but that's about as good as if the vaccines get at protecting against Omicron. I talked about this today with Dr. Ofer Levy. He's a Harvard pediatrician who will help decide whether to recommend the FDA authorize the vaccine next week. My initial read of this suggests a reasonable safety profile, as well as evidence of immunogenicity, inducing antibodies that can be protective, as well as reducing the risk of COVID. So altogether, that looks pretty favorable. But, you know, Levy stresses he's reserving final judgment until next week. And Rob, what exactly happens next week? 
Yeah, it's going to be the culmination of what has been a long, stressful wait for many parents of very young children. On Monday, the FDA will release the agency's assessment of the Pfizer-BioNTech pediatric vaccine. I mean, that could come earlier, possibly. And on Tuesday, the FDA Advisory Committee Levy's on decides whether to recommend authorizing Moderna's vaccine for older kids, ages 6 through 17. Wednesday's the big day. The advisors will evaluate both the Moderna and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines for the kids younger than 5. If the committee gives a green light and the FDA agrees, the CDC will decide whether to recommend it the following weekend, and kids younger than five will finally be able to start getting vaccinated as soon as the Tuesday after that. A lot of positive news. That's NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Thank you. Sure thanks, Sasha. Last night, the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol launched a series of public hearings. During the primetime event, Vice Chair Liz Cheney made it clear that these hearings will show how former President Trump was responsible for the deadly insurrection. Here's Cheney summing up what the House Select Committee plans to lay out. On this point, there is no room for debate. Those who invaded our Capitol and battled law enforcement for hours were motivated by what President Trump had told them, that the election was stolen and that he was the rightful president. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Joining us now to talk about this month of hearings is NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Hey, Deirdre. Hey, Elsa. All right, so last night was kind of like the opening night for the committee, which is going to be holding a total of like seven hearings, right? Right. What did we learn last night about what might be lying ahead, you think? Well, Cheney led a a very methodical and effective overview of the evidence that the panel has gathered over months, and she gave a roadmap for what to expect what will come. She said the panel is going to show that there was a seven-part plan by former President Trump and his associates to try to overturn the 2020 election results. The committee used video clips of members of Trump's own inner circle to show that they had told him some starting soon after the election in November, that there was no election fraud, but he kept pushing the big lie. Cheney also teased out some pretty damning clips from interviews the committee did with former Attorney General Bill Barr, Trump's daughter Ivanka, and Trump loyalists like Jason Miller. He was on the Trump campaign, and he told the committee that he told President Trump after the election the votes weren't there and he lost. We can expect to hear more from those close to Trump and close to former Vice President Mike Pence over the next month. Okay, tell me more about that. What do we know so far about the plan for next week's hearings? Well, next week, there are going to be three hearings. On Monday, they're going to focus on Trump's attempts to litigate the election results in court. Former Fox News political editor Chris Steyerwalt, he was fired from Fox News for making the call that Biden won Arizona on election night. He announced he's going to testify on Monday. On Wednesday, the committee is going to focus about the plan to put pressure on the uh, Justice Department to pursue claims about election fraud. NPR's Kerry Johnson has confirmed that former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen, who replaced Bill Barr, is going to appear along with two other DOJ officials. And on Thursday, we're going to hear a lot of detail about how Trump and his allies pressured former Vice President Mike Pence to try to get him to refuse to certify the election. Okay, so clearly these hearings are all about ultimately one person, former President Trump. How has he been reacting to these hearings so far? <laughs> he is not happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, on his conservative social media account, he blasted the committee. He called Barr stupid. He said that his 
daughter, Ivanka Trump, who was a senior White House advisor for him, had, quote, long since checked out and wasn't involved in looking at the election results. And he claims that she was being respectful when she told the committee on camera that we saw last night that she accepted Bill Barr's conclusion that there were no election irregularities. I want to ask you, Deirdre, because you've been following this investigation for a while. You've been covering Congress for even longer than that. I'm so curious, what is like the one thing you'll be listening for in all of these hearings? I mean, the one thing that really stuck out last night was Cheney mentioning that Republican Congressman Scott Perry had approached the Trump administration about getting a possible presidential pardon after January 6th. Cheney also said other GOP lawmakers sought pardons. Perry has denied that he asked for a pardon. He's also refused to cooperate with the committee. After the hearing last night, Benny Thompson said that the panel had documentation that the names of other Republicans in Congress who sought pardons is going to come out in the future hearings. Mm. That is NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you, Deirdre. Thanks, Elsa. It's hot in the western U.S., hotter than normal for this time of year. Through the next few days, many parts of California are expected to see temperatures well above 100 degrees. Saul Gonzalez of member station KQED reports from Los Angeles. How hot is it? Well, let's let Alex Tardy, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service, explain. We've had some prior heat waves this year, but not as intense as this one or as long duration. Experts are already advising people not to leave their children and pets in cars and to avoid strenuous outdoor physical activity during the hottest times of the day. So these are significant temperatures and these are temperatures that are dangerous to everyone if you don't take precautions. Some cities like Sacramento and Palm Springs have opened air-conditioned public cooling centers. And this heat wave comes as California fire officials sound the alarm about yet another year of extreme wildfire danger. Danger that will likely last for months. This is my 11th year as the fire chief. And so nine out of the 11 years, I feel like a scratched record. Daryl Osby is chief of the Los Angeles County Fire Department. He spoke at a press conference yesterday. I've said the same thing. This year is going to be hotter. It's going to be drier. Leading into the fall when we have our wind-driven fires here in Southern California. Like much of the rest of the baking West, California fire officials say they're staffing up and working hard to identify and clear flammable brush and undergrowth. These high temperatures are happening as California endures its third consecutive year of drought, with little to no rainfall in the forecast. This month, mandatory water restrictions kicked in for more than 6 million people in Southern California. Residents are required to limit their outdoor water use to once or twice a week or face possible fines. For NPR News, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The new St. Regis Chicago Tower stands 101 stories high. It is the world's tallest building designed by a woman. Tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition, we hear from that architect about glass ceilings and glassy skyscrapers. Listen on your radio or try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the 1960s, an underground network of women in Chicago called the Jane Collective helped women seeking an abortion. We'll profile the group coming up next. 
On Wall Street today, the week ended with a big drop. The Dow lost two and three quarters percent, 880 points. It closed at 31,393. S&P had its worst week since January. It fell nearly three percent to finish at 3,901. NASDAQ lost more than 3.5% to close 11,340. Details on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.19. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. In a rare move, Market Basket is closing one of its stores. The supermarket chain says it's being forced to close the store at the Bilrica Mall tomorrow. The landlord informed Market Basket they need to vacate. The store's employees are being relocated to the two other Market Baskets in Bilrica. Market Basket has opened seven new stores in the past couple of years and is adding two more this year. The forecast is next. The thought was if San Francisco is rejecting its beacon of progressives, then the country must be. But in my reporting, drawing that one-to-one causal relationship, that progressive policies meant crime went up and thus people are retreating from criminal justice reform, is just too simple of a connection. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Should have some clouds collecting overnight tonight. Temperatures about 60. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs about 80. Chance of afternoon showers on Sunday. Otherwise, partly sunny skies in the upper 70s for a high. If live coverage of the January 6th hearings is important to you, please support it. And the thorough coverage you get on All Things Considered. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. In the 1960s, an underground network of women in Chicago was formed to help women seeking abortions. The group was known as Jane. At first, they connected women with doctors willing to break the law. Eventually, women in the collective trained to perform abortions themselves. We're going to return to a story we first broadcast in 2018 that includes first-hand accounts of Jane, and this includes graphic descriptions that some listeners may find disturbing. Radio Diaries brings us the story. My name is Wynette Willis. When I was 23 years old, I was a single mom, and I became pregnant. It terrified me, the thought of having another kid by myself. I remember being on an L on the train platform and seeing a sign. And the sign said, pregnant, and it was a question mark. Don't wanna be, question mark. Call Jane and a phone number. So I called. Good evening. The facts are astonishing. Hundreds of thousands of pregnant women, unmindful of what may happen to them, secretly seek abortions. For them, There is a wide gulf between what the law commands and what they feel they must do. 
My name's Heather Booth. I started Jane in 1965 when a friend of mine was looking for a doctor to perform an abortion. I made the arrangements. Then someone else called. Well, by the third call, I realized I couldn't manage it on my own. I thought I better set up a system. My name is Martha Scott. I joined the group in 1969. I had four children under the age of five. Many of us were stay-at-home moms, a bunch of housewives. I'm Jean Gallitzer-Levy. I was a member of Jane. I was 20 years old. I hadn't had so much as a speeding ticket. But abortion really was the front line. It was where women are dying. We met someone before they were going to do this. We gave them a chance to talk about it, and we told them what was going to happen. There were lots of points along the way where they could have said no. Changed my mind. Because you do think about it a lot. I don't think anyone chooses to have an abortion lightly. I remember the day of, I took public transportation to this apartment in Hyde Park. There was like seven or eight people in there. And we waited. At the appointed time, we were put into a car and we were taken to a second location where the abortion was performed. It felt very underground, you know. I remember looking at the people who performed the surgery and I felt relief <laughs> that somebody was gonna help me. My name is Ted O'Connor. I was a young homicide detective on the south side of Chicago. This is a Catholic city. Abortion wasn't even discussed, and I knew nothing about Jane. The whole operation was totally under our radar. Jane was very organized and very clandestine and secretive. My name is Leslie Regan. I'm a professor of history and author of the book, When Abortion Was a Crime. The thing that ultimately made Jane so unique was they took the practice of abortion into their own hands. They decided to learn and perform abortions themselves. And that was a stunning decision. We told them up front we were not doctors. You know, doctors charged $500 a pop. So we would say, we charge $100, but we will take what you can pay. We were doing four days a week, and we were typically doing 10 women a day. We would rent apartments all over the city. We set up in two bedrooms and put linens on the bed and sterilized our instruments. So the person uh, who was having the abortion would, you know, stretch out and the person who was assisting would sit with them while it was happening, you know, hold hands and, you know. And then I would insert the speculum, administer the anesthesia, and then the cervix would be dilated. And then the instrument would be inserted into the uterus to remove the material. I probably did hundreds of abortions. I mean, the fact is abortion is a pretty easy procedure. But still, you're messing around inside somebody else's body. There were people who ended up in the emergency room. You know, it's, it wasn't always perfect by any means. You know, we felt it was the right thing to do. But that doesn't mean anything when the police are actually at your door. It was spring of 1972, and two uh, female Hispanics walked into the police station. 
and uh, they told us that their sister-in-law uh, was going to have an abortion. And so with two unmarked squad cars, we managed to follow uh, our target, pulled up in front of one of the apartment buildings, rode up on the elevator, and we saw a young woman, uh, late 20s, extremely well-dressed, and she stopped momentarily and braced herself. She was pale. Looks like the blood had drained out of her face. And uh, my partner took her by the arm and in a very stern voice said, did you just have an abortion? And she said, yes. And he said, where? And she led us to the door. The living room was uh, filled with young women waiting for an abortion. They were such Chicago cops, you know? They were, uh, they were burly. Uh, they spoke with Southside accents. They came in and looked around and said, where's the doctor? Looking for the guy. But there wasn't any guy. You know, there was just us. I remember one of the women asked me uh, what I thought these women were supposed to do if they couldn't get an abortion. You know, what did I think was the right thing? And, uh, and I told her, listen, I don't have any opinions about what they should do, but you're breaking the law. That's all I know. And that's why I'm here. So we arrested everybody. I remember being handcuffed to somebody and we were all taken down to women's lockup. We were charged with 11 counts of abortion and conspiracy to commit abortion. I remember thinking at the time, I can see both sides of this. It's, it's a tough issue. You know, on my side is I don't want to see a life destroyed. That life is helpless. It has no choice in this. And that's, that angers me. On the other hand, I've never been pregnant. Six months after the arrests, the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade. The charges against Jane were dropped. We all kind of scattered, went on to other things. I mean, we really thought the fact that it was legal would change things, that it would fade a lot as any kind of a social issue. But we were wrong. We were wrong. The group Jane performed about 11,000 first and second trimester abortions before Roe v. Wade. No deaths of women were ever reported in connection with the service. The story was produced by Nellie Gillis. You can hear more on the Radio Diaries podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Beautiful out there right now in the Boston area. Some clouds around overnight tonight. Temperatures fall to 59. Gusty winds tonight. Tomorrow, pretty nice. Partly sunny. Highs about 80 degrees. Sunday should be partly sunny with a chance of some afternoon showers, though. Winds blowing us around. Highs about 77 degrees on Sunday. Tonight at the Gardens, the Celtics versus the Golden State Warriors in Game 4 of the Best of 7 Series. Celts have a 2-1 advantage, 9 p.m. start time. And the Red Sox are in Seattle for a three-game series with the Mariners, 10-10, first pitch. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig and the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at ICABoston.org. 
Recently on Wait, Wait, Maz Jobrani expressed some doubt about Tom Cruise's other film franchise. By the way, if you do the impossible mission 43 times, it's clearly possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm Peter Sagal. If any of our panelists are caught or killed during this week's show with special guest Keenan Thompson, well, that would be really surprising. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. There was a sharp sell-off on Wall Street today after disappointing new data on inflation. Consumer prices for gas, food, and other necessities rose 8.6 percent in May from a year ago, the biggest increase in more than 40 years. The Dow closed down by almost 3 percent today, as NPR's David Gura tells us the CPI report may change the Federal Reserve's plans to fight high inflation when policy... Policy makers meet next week. The consumer price index for May showed prices rising faster than Wall Street expected. Some economists suggested inflation could have peaked earlier in the year. It's not the case. This is the fastest annual pace in four decades. The Fed Reserve meets next week. It's expected to raise rates by half a percentage point, and it's signaled it'll do that at the meeting after that, too. Now, there's an expectation that because of these new data, the Fed will continue to act aggressively beyond that. NPR's David Gura. Much higher gas prices tied to the Russian invasion of Ukraine were to blame for most of that increase. Refugees have been steadily returning to Ukraine since the country's two biggest cities came under the firm control of Ukrainian forces. But as NPR's Julian Yulian Haida reports, some Ukrainians are leaving the country for a second time in search of a job. Economic migration is nothing new for Ukraine. Even before the war, the population dropped by 8 million people since independence three decades ago. On Thursday, the UN reported an additional 7 million people left in the past three months to escape Russia's full-scale invasion in February. Out of those, about a third have attempted to return, only to find infrastructure severely damaged and the economy slashed almost in half. The UN says many opt to leave again. While European countries have treated the refugee crisis as a boon on their labor markets, officials close to Ukraine's president fear the country won't rebound until there's an economic incentive to do so. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A big heads up if you're heading to Logan Airport this weekend or any time until early next year on the weekends. The Sumner Tunnel will be closed to traffic tonight until early Monday as major renovations get underway. Those shutdowns will be happening each weekend until February during the first phase of the project. East Boston City Councilor Gabriella Coletta says she's working with the MBTA and the State Department of Transportation to help people navigate the construction. Trying to expand the East Boston Residence Program where they have reduced toll fares up on the Tobin. Just trying to make sure that we have routes clearly marked for folks. We're trying to explore other options. Coletta says while East Boston residents don't like the inconvenience, they know the repairs on the 87-year-old Sumner Tunnel are necessary. With one confirmed case of monkeypox in Massachusetts and 44 others across the country, the federal government is buying more vaccine. Health officials say the risk to the American public is low, but they want to be prepared. More than 1,200 cases of the monkeypox virus has been reported worldwide. Federal government is preparing to release new rules for the shipping industry to better protect the endangered right whale. 
The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has been reviewing the speed of ships off the New England coast for several years to try to prevent collisions with the whales. There are estimated to be only 340 North Atlantic right whales left in the world. The Cape Cod National Seashore is calling attention to the prevalence of fishing gear, trash, and other marine debris. It's working with the Center for Coastal Studies to hire artists to use the waste in new displays. The center's Laura Ludwig hopes the artwork will help people see how they can do their part to protect the environment. When you open your granola bar, hang on to that little corner that, that rips off because we find hundreds of those on the beach. When you're playing with toys on the beach, maybe think about looking for them before you leave and making sure you grab them. The art is expected to go on display next spring at the Cape Cod National Seashore Visitor Center. The forecast is coming up in just a second. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Been a lovely June day. We should have some clouds moving in tonight, windy and dry down around 60. Tomorrow should turn out partly sunny, highs about 80 degrees. For Sunday, some sunshine, some clouds, maybe a few showers in the afternoon, gusty winds. Highs Sunday about 77 degrees. 75 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR and from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If a federal law enforcement officer performed what you felt was an unreasonable search or seizure, what recourse would you have? A Supreme Court decision this week appears to prevent you from suing that officer for damages. The case involves the owner of an inn near the Canadian border who said a U.S. Border Patrol agent used excessive force against him. The majority of the court ruled against the innkeeper. It was a 6-3 to three decision, and it stopped just short of overturning a 1971 Supreme Court decision that established the ability to sue a federal agent for damages. We asked Howard Wasserman to help us understand this new case. He's a contributing writer to SCOTUS blog and a professor of law at Florida International University. Howard, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. I think the details of this case are extremely interesting. In fact, one legal analyst described this innkeeper as a, quote, somewhat shady figure. Would you, as briefly as possible, explain the details of this case to us? Sure. And he he is a character. So he runs an inn called the Smuggler's Inn on the border of the United States and Canada in Washington state. And there's a lot of sort of shady activity of drug and human trafficking back and forth across the border in that town. And he also served as a paid government informant, including sometimes, according to the court, on the people who were staying in his inn. 
So the innkeeper had a confrontation with a border control agent. He said that agent used excessive force. He sued. In the end, the court ruled six to three against the innkeeper with all the conservative justices in the majority. Break down simply what the opinion says. So the majority opinion narrowed but didn't eliminate the ability to sue a federal official for damages for a constitutional violation. What they did say was that considerations of national security and foreign affairs that are endemic to immigration enforcement and immigration issues are always going to make it improper for a damages action to go forward. If not the court, who should be allowed to let the damages claim go forward? It should be Congress. Congress can authorize a claim for damages as they do for violations by state and local law enforcement or state and local government officials. Congress could do the same thing with respect to federal officials. And the fact that it hasn't means the court shouldn't be the one stepping in, at least where something like national security, immigration, foreign affairs are implicated. Some legal analysts are calling this, and this is a quote, a severe blow to the broader project of police accountability. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it severely limits one really good way of deterring law enforcement and governmental misconduct and establishing accountability, which is private suits for damages. I think we need to establish the larger political context here, which is this involves a border patrol agent. Immigration is an enormous political national issue right now. So it feels like this is deeply connected to current day politics and could play out in so many ways. Oh, absolutely. And the point of departure between the majority and the dissent was the majority said, if it's a border patrol officer, regardless of where he is, what he's doing, national security is always implicated with anything that border patrol does. The dissent's view was, yeah, he happens to work for the Border Patrol, but what he was doing is the same thing that any FBI agent was doing. He went onto somebody's property, he used excessive force, and the person he encountered was a U.S. citizen on U.S. property. And the majority is like, no, the Border Patrol, by its very nature, regardless of what it's doing and where, is just a different breed of law enforcement animal. That's Howard Wasserman. He wrote about this case for SCOTUS blog, and he's a professor of law at Florida International University. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it is too soon to tell whether the hearings about the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol will resonate with the American public. But in cities all across the country, liberal activists organized about 90 watch events to encourage people to take in the first hearing together. NPR's Juana Summers was at one in Philadelphia and has this story. At a church in Northwest Philly, people trickled through the courtyard, eager to hear from the House Committee that has spent a year investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. I expect to be shocked, and I didn't want to be shocked at home by myself. That's Melanie Brennan. She came with friend Chauncey Harris. I asked him what he hoped to see and hear. I hope for now they'll be able to show people what the truth is and we can get rid of our personal opinions and just judge the fact on, on the fact. That's what I hope happened. I hope we get some justice in this country. Handwritten signs on big pieces of poster board pointed the way inside the stone church. People piled their plates with deli sandwiches and cracked open cold sodas. Tim Brown, one of the event's organizers, presided over a satirical award ceremony. The first award 
of the evening is the Golden Boot Award, given for the most servile and degrading act of bootlicking by a political toady. The nominees for this award, really not an award, were three Republican senators, Mitt Romney of Utah, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and Ted Cruz of Texas. Who thinks it should be Ted Cruz? A woman accepted the trophy standing in the front of the room, arms outstretched, holding a single spray-painted golden boot. I asked Tim Brown, the organizing director of Philadelphia Neighborhood Networks, about these awards. I think it's important to add levity to dark situations, in some instances to take the pressure off people, but also humor is a good way to get the point across. By the time Chairman Benny Thompson gaveled the hearing in, more than 40 people had gathered to watch the live stream. The select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol will be in order. As the hearing began, people mostly watched quietly. Occasionally, someone would offer up an aside about something that had been said during the hearing. That was until Wyoming Republican Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the select committee, spoke. She addressed fellow Republicans who have boycotted the proceedings, painting them as illegitimate. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. And the applause was so loud that it was hard to make out what Cheney said next. This was a moment that stuck with Raymond Torres. I spoke with him when the committee went into a brief recess. The Republican senators have not really confronted Trump and says he needs to stop lying. And at least Liz Cheney has been willing to do that. Organizer Tim Brown worried about who would watch the hearing. He said some people told him directly that if they couldn't watch collectively, they wouldn't do so at all. I asked him why. Trauma. People were shocked at some of the things we said. And one woman came up to me, she said, I couldn't have watched this alone. This was too terrorizing. When you saw those people breaching the Capitol and the, the cops fighting for their lives, it was just horrendous. The committee's second public hearing will be held on Monday. Juana Summers, NPR News, Philadelphia. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. French President Emmanuel Macron recently won a second term, beating far-right leader Marine Le Pen. But if Macron wants to enact his agenda, he has to keep his majority in parliament in legislative elections this month. NPR's Eleanor Beersley reports that this time, Macron's party is facing stiff competition from the far left. Legislative elections are so important to a French president's term that they're often referred to as the third round of the presidential election. Macron is now feeling the heat from charismatic far-left firebrand Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who came in a close third behind Marine Le Pen in the first round of April's presidential vote. Mélenchon has now assembled a leftist coalition to battle Macron's party for control of parliament. That's quite a feat, says Corinne Meloul, who teaches political science at Sciences Po University. He achieved something that all of the left-wing parties put together were not able to achieve before the presidential election, which is that he was able to create a common list 
uniting all left-wing parties. The coalition, called the New Popular Environmental and Social Union, or Les Noops, is made up of three leftist parties plus the Green Party. Hey, garçon. Antoine, s'il te plaît, amène-moi la feuille, je l'ai perdue. Clever, funny, a former professor and a brilliant orator, Mélenchon has been called a Gallic Hugo Chavez. He says he wants to become France's next prime minister and take the country in a new direction. Et dans ce 21e siècle, une sorte de dieu bizarre qui s'appelle le marché. In this 21st century, a strange god called the market is telling us what's good and bad and dictates our behavior, he tells the rapt crowd, and we see the disastrous results. Mélenchon's message about climate change and inequality in society has also rallied millions of young people like Thomas Luquet and Mel Pichon, who say he's a modern-day Robin Hood. This economy uh, kills the planet, and we want to change the system, and we want a better uh, redistribution of money. Basically, Macron is implementing measures that are very dangerous for the poor people. Everything is being put on the market. It's the destruction of the public system. Paul Cholet Noop's coalition is neck and neck with the president's party in legislative races across the country. If Les Noops get a majority of the 577 seats, Macron will have to name Mélenchon prime minister, and the leftists would control the agenda, says political scientist Maloul. We'd be looking at a, an enormous political crisis where you have a president from one party and a prime minister from the opposition. And in that case, Macron would be basically stuck for the next five years. That situation called cohabitation has only happened three times in the last 65 years. But even if they don't get an outright majority, Les Noops will likely become a strong opposition in a parliament that has been dominated by Macron's party over the last five years. It's very simple, says 64-year-old Mélenchon supporter Sylvie Hérault after his rally. C'est devenir un pays comme le vôtre. What we don't want is to become a country like yours, she says, where people are left to die in the streets, there's no health care for all, and black people are treated badly. That's not our conception of society in France. The French go to the polls to choose their parliament in a first-round vote this weekend. The runoff is June 19th. Eleanor Beardsley in Pierre News, Paris. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up, revisiting Dorothy in Oz on what would have been Judy Garland's 100th birthday. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. WBUR supporters include Empire Loan, with eight New England locations recognizing Boston Explorers, whose mission provides children ages 7 to 15 the opportunity to explore Boston in an electronic-free setting and learn lifelong skills committed to ensuring all children have full and equal access to Boston. BostonExplorers.org. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Boston Celtics versus the Golden State Warriors in Game 4 of the Best of Seven series. Celts have a 2-to-1 advantage. The city of Boston is hosting a free public viewing party for anybody who wants to watch the matchup. It'll be in Copley Square. The game starts at 9. Red Sox have moved up the West Coast line to Seattle, where they'll start up a weekend series with the Mariners tonight. 10-10 start time. 75 degrees in the Boston area. Look for some clouds overnight tonight. Then partly sunny skies tomorrow, about 80. In the 70s on Sunday, possible showers in the afternoon, otherwise partly sunny. 
WBUR is going out on a limb, and we hope you'll join us. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're eliminating a five-day on-air fundraiser this month so you can hear WBUR uninterrupted. But we still need to make our goal. Take a minute right now and give monthly at WBUR.org. That way we'll meet the goal and you can still hear all the news and storytelling that brings us together. Give now and thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. In Prague's historic Old Town Square, you will find an intricate 600-year-old piece of machinery, the Orloid. It's a colorful medieval clock, and it's one of the most famous sites in Prague. It's in every tourist guide, and there's always a crowd watching it. You have all these um, sort of little puppets that move and dance. I mean, it's a very sort of popular attraction for tourists who come here. That's Prague Radio International's Thomas McEnroe. It's a sort of symbol of national pride as well. The Orloi has been repaired several times since it was built in 1410. The last major renovation cost the city $2.6 million, and it was finished in 2018. That's when art restorer Stanislav Yurchik was commissioned to paint a replica of the clock's iconic rotating calendar plate. Imagine it as a big circular sort of picture on which, uh, you know, different months are sort of artistically depicted as images. But four years after he finished it, a member of a local preservation group noticed something was off. And he just noticed so many mistakes. The images are very different to the original. There weren't major differences, just lots of little things. Like in the original, there's a black dog, but in your cheeks version, the dog is brown. Or a figure is painted older or with different hair. The more you look, the more changes you find. The Czech Republic is in the news and it's uh, it, it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it, on one hand? And on the other hand, it's just a sort of strange joke that nobody noticed this for four years. Some people think your cheek was playing a prank on the city. Others think he painted his own friends into the piece. But he has refused criticism, and uh, he says that he was inspired by the original artist. For now, the new painting is still on display in the Old Town Square, but investigators from the Ministry of Culture are on the case, and surely they are working around the clock to solve it. Her name at birth was Frances Ethel Gum. But you probably know her as Judy Garland, actress, singer, one of Hollywood's biggest stars as a teenager. She had dozens of film roles, from the Let's Put On a Show movies with Mickey Rooney to A Star is Born. She's especially beloved for the film that critic Bob Mondello revisited when its multi-disc 75th anniversary set was released in 2005. We thought an encore would be a nice way to celebrate Judy Garland today, which would have been her 100th birthday. The first few times I saw The Wizard of Oz, my family still had a black and white TV set, so Dorothy's arrival into Oz was not the gee whiz moment it might have been. She stepped from her black and white Kansas farmhouse into a black and white Oz, where the foliage was shiny and the munchkins looked like tiny gray clowns. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. When we finally got a color TV, it was different, but only slightly. When Dorothy stepped through her door, it wasn't so much from black and white into color as from sepia into pastel. We must be over the rainbow. 
I have since seen The Wizard of Oz on much better TV sets, and also on the big screen at a theater where our local friends of Dorothy greeted Glinda's arrival in her pink bubble by releasing pink helium balloons that floated to the ceiling. On the bigger screen, it was easy to see that in between her lines, Judy Garland had to hide her face in Toto's fur a couple of times because vaudevillian Bert Lahr was cracking her up. Is my nose bleeding? <laughs> well, of course not. <laughs> my goodness, what a fuss you're making. The prints I saw, both on TV and in theaters, were serviceable, but gave the impression that 1930s cameras made everything a little fuzzy. The Technicolor process used separate film strips for blue, yellow, and red, but when the original negatives got warped, the color strips didn't line up right, and the crispness disappeared. When the film was restored for the DVD, the negatives were realigned digitally. After 66 years, it's almost as if someone finally thought to clean the lens on the projector. It's beautiful, isn't it? The new DVD also has 13 hours of extras, a half dozen alternate versions of Over the Rainbow, for instance, including a deleted verse that a scared, miserable Dorothy was to have sung after she'd been locked up in the witch's castle. Someday I'll wake and rub my eyes, and in that land beyond the skies, you'll find me. I'm going to guess this was cut because Judy Garland did it too well. Kids would have been inconsolable if they'd left it in. A film might not have recovered. Somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly, birds fly over the rainbow. I'm frightened. I'm frightened, Eddie. Am I frightened? Isn't that sad? How on earth would you follow it? How am I going to follow it? How about with a version that's more like the one we all remember? Now, isn't that better? And there are other outtakes, too. A deleted dance sequence for Ray Bolger's Scarecrow, and a song that never got fully staged, but that did get recorded about a big insect called the Jitterbug. Did you just hear what I just heard? That noise don't come from no ordinary bird. It may be just a cricket or a critter in the trees. It's given me the jitters and the joints around my knees. The scene was never filmed. What we see on the DVD are composer Harold Arlen's home movies, shot from behind one of Oz's apple-throwing trees. So you can sort of see how it might have looked, and also see the guys inside the trees. Who's that hiding in the treetops? It's that rascal, the jitterbug. You can see why they cut this number. It was padding, something you could also say about a few of the DVD's extras. Five silent versions of The Wizard of Oz dating back to 1910 don't add much, even though one stars Oliver Hardy, the big half of Laurel and Hardy. 
If those, why not shows that came later, the African-American musical The Wiz and Wicked and that dreadful Chevy Chase movie Under the Rainbow? But then wandering too far afield would hardly be in this movie's spirit. If I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. That's sort of what the restorers discovered and why they labored so hard to revive the film's color, clarity, and sound. The point was to make the film not better, but just the way we think we remember it. And now it is. Not quite enough to make you say there's no place like home video, but close. I'm Bob Mandela. Happy Friday. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Bright skies continue into the evening, then clouds collect overnight tonight. Temperatures fall to about 60. Weekend should be nice, partly sunny tomorrow, topping out around 80. Sunday, the chance of afternoon showers, but a mix of sun and clouds for the most part in the upper 70s for a high. Join MSNBC anchor Katie Tour and me at the Coolidge Corner Theater this Thursday, June 16th, as we talk about Tour's memoir called Rough Draft and what it was like to lock horns with Donald Trump and suffer his wrath as a result. The event is sponsored by Brookline Booksmith. Get details at wbur.org slash events. This is WBUR 75 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. January 6th committee members on Capitol Hill hear testimony from a U.S. Capitol Police officer who described what happened on the day of the attack. I was catching people as they fell. It was carnage. It was chaos. This is Friday, June 10th. It's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, we'll hear from documentarian Nick Quested, who was filming the extremist group The Proud Boys before and during the riots. Meanwhile, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney said The Proud Boys interrupted or interpreted, that is, a tweet by former President Trump as implicit support for the Capitol attack. The tweet led to the planning for what occurred on January 6th, including by The Proud Boys, who ultimately led the invasion of the Capitol. More from the January 6th hearings coming up. Also, how media coverage of gun violence in America affects news consumers. It's 6.01. The headlines are next. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. 
The Biden administration is dropping the requirement for travelers coming into the U.S. by air to test negative for COVID-19 before departure. That rule changes this Sunday. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. A senior Biden administration official said the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has determined the testing requirement is no longer needed based on the, quote, science and data. However, it does plan to reassess this decision in 90 days, and it could reinstate it if a new concerning variant develops. The travel industry has been lobbying for this decision for months. The administration says it was able to take this step because of the progress made in fighting the virus and the availability of vaccines and treatments. The CDC will continue to recommend travelers test for COVID-19 prior to air travel, but the requirement will be dropped, effective Sunday, June 12th at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A judge in Wisconsin has found the investigator hired by state Republicans to look into former President Donald Trump's loss in the state in contempt because of the way his office responded to open records requests. That ruling came after investigator Michael Gableman berated the judge in court and refused to answer any questions on the witness stand. Gableman was hired a year ago by the Speaker of the Wisconsin State Assembly. Moderna's pediatric COVID-19 vaccines appear to be safe and effective for children as young as six months old. That's according to the first detailed data from the company released today by the Food and Drug Administration. NPR's Rob Stein has their story. Moderna says versions of the company's vaccines designed for children and adolescents appear to be safe and effective, including for children as young as six months old. The company says two shots a month apart stimulate the immune system enough to protect against COVID-19 and don't appear to raise any new safety concerns. The assessment was released in preparation for two days of meetings of the FDA's independent advisors on Tuesday and Wednesday. If the advisors recommend the vaccines, it would set the stage for children younger than five to become eligible for vaccination for the first time. The advisors will also consider Pfizer and BioNTech's three-shot pediatric vaccine for kids younger than five. Rob Stein. NPR News. As just about any shopper can tell you, the prices of gas, food, and most other goods and services were up in May. The government says consumer prices were up 8.6 percent over the same period last year. It's the biggest yearly increase since December of 1981. The new figure will increase pressure on the Federal Reserve to continue aggressively raising interest rates. On Wall Street, meanwhile, it was a bad week. The S&P 500 finished down 116 points, or 2.91 percent, to finish out at 3,900. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 880 points, or 2.73 percent, to finish the day at 31,392. The Nasdaq fell 414 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Starting next month, the Massachusetts Department of Public Health will recommend that wearing a mask inside public places be optional for most people, regardless of vaccination status. Face coverings will still be required inside health care facilities. The state health department announced the change today, citing improving COVID metrics and high vaccination rates. Also today, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports just three counties, Suffolk, Middlesex, and Norfolk, are considered to have high COVID transmission and is recommending face coverings in public places in those counties. Prosecutors are charging 46 members of the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity at the University of New Hampshire in connection with a student hazing. Police say they found probable cause that the hazing took place in April. Prosecutor Emily Garrod is with the Stratford County Attorney's Office. She says the members face misdemeanor charges. If there was a significant assault or anything that resulted in you know, serious injuries, that would be a separate charge. But all we have at this point to support probable cause is 
student hazing. The national fraternity says it's issued a cease and desist order to its New Hampshire chapter and is cooperating with authorities. The Boston Art and Music Soul Fest, better known as BAMS Fest, opens tomorrow in Franklin Park in Boston. As WBR's Lauren Williams reports, the festival's founder calls it a black wonderland. When founder Catherine Morris returned to Boston after college, she saw a gap in the city's music festival scene. So she dreamed up a festival that puts a spotlight on Black Boston artists. Morris says that this weekend's theme is epic joy. You have music. There's all this artist discovery. There's folks you may know. There's folks you may not know. There might be genres of music you never listened to before. But you're going to experience it here at Bands Festival. The festival in Franklin Park is free, with live music from Latin jazz to hip-hop and R&B and food from across the African diaspora. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. 75 degrees now in the Boston area. Some clouds move in tonight. Temperatures fall to about 59, gusty winds. Tomorrow, partly sunny, highs near 80. Sunday should be partly sunny as well, but still the chance of an afternoon shower with winds blowing us around. Highs about 77. It's 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Little Market, a nonprofit dedicated to the economic empowerment of women and underserved communities, offering artisan-made goods, home decor, and gifts with a commitment to fair trade. TheLittleMarket.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection held a televised primetime hearing last night. Committee members and viewers at home heard testimony from two witnesses who were there that day, starting with U.S. Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards. She was the first law enforcement officer to be injured in the riot. That sound from a video showing her being knocked to the ground by rioters who broke through a barrier outside the Capitol. Someone in the crowd slammed a metal bicycle rack into her, knocking her unconscious. And when she came to... What I saw was just a war scene. It was something like I'd seen out of the movies. I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. I was catching people as they fell. It was carnage. It was chaos. Edwards suffered a traumatic brain injury that day. During the same attack, she saw someone pepper spraying her colleague, Officer Brian Sicknick. I turned and it was Officer Sicknick with his head in his hands and he was ghostly pale. And I was concerned. My uh, cop alarm bells went off because if you get sprayed with pepper spray, you're gonna turn red. He turned um, just about as pale as this sheet of paper. I looked back to see what had hit him and that's when I got sprayed in the eyes as well. Officer Sicknick died the following day. Since January 6th, some people have described the events as a protest that got out of hand. But there's evidence this was a planned attack. That evidence includes the work of the hearing's second witness, Nick Quested. 
Quested is an award-winning documentarian. In January 2021, he was filming the violent extremist group The Proud Boys and was with them before and during the riots. Representative Benny Thompson is chair of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. And last night, he said Quested's footage and information are crucial because... A central question is whether the attack on the Capitol was coordinated and planned. What you witnessed is what a coordinated and planned effort would look like. It was the culmination of a months-long effort spearheaded by President Trump. Well, joining me now is Nick Quested. Welcome to All Things Considered. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for being with us. So I want to go back to January 5th, 2021. You testified yesterday that you were with the leader of the Proud Boys that day, Enrique Tarrio. You were filming him for your documentary. You testified that you saw him meet in a parking garage with the leader of another far-right group, the Oath Keepers. And I want to ask you, what did Tarrio tell you about what happened during that meeting? Um, well, uh um, Mr. Tario told us that he discussed his communications uh, with his friends and, and he was asking for some advice from uh, um, Kelly Sorrell, who's a, uh, a lawyer that has some experience in Second Amendment issues. Okay. Did Tario mention anything, anything at all at the time that might have suggested what would happen on January 6th, the next day? No, there was no projection forward. The discussion was about where he was going to stay and about the security of his communications because he's had his computer, his phone and his Apple Watch uh, uh, held by the um, DC police after his arrest for carrying the extended magazines into DC and for burning the Black Lives Matter flag on December the 12th. Uh, I mean, but in retrospect, he did mention that his, um, he was concerned for his for his boys and wanted to stay close to them and stay. So he chose to stay in Baltimore, which is about you know half an hour to 40 minutes north right. of DC. Right. Okay. Well, the next day on January 6th, you were filming the Proud Boys when they attended a rally in Washington, DC. They marched to the Capitol. What did you see once you arrived at the Capitol? Just describe it real quick for us. Well, there's two aspects to us arriving to the Capitol. First is at 10.30, we picked up the Proud Boys as they're watching down the, down the mall. And we are trying to cover it like a normal scene, like we're running ahead to get a, 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 a shot or to the side or even inside them. And we walk past the Capitol. And we walk past the Capitol at 11.52 a.m. And there was only one police officer on the barricades that subsequently are overrun by the protesters. Mm -hmm. We then walked around the Capitol and then we doubled back and they had lunch uh, at this taco truck, uh, food truck, uh, um, there's a group of food trucks on Constitution. And then around uh, 1245, we walked over to the um, peace circle and we stopped. And what was notable about that was there was this man called Ryan Samsel who had these white sleeves on and a T-shirt above his, uh, this long-sleeved white shirt. Mm. And he puts his arms around um, Biggs, who's one of the Proud Boy leaders. And I hadn't seen this man before. So it was a little strange because Mr. Biggs, you know, doesn't seem like the cuddliest person in the world. Mm. And, um, 
And then we, I saw Mr. Samsel walk off towards the barriers. I'm so sorry for cutting in. What I want to understand from your perspective, in your mind, were the Proud Boys simply there to attend a rally and things just got out of hand, as many of those who support them say is what happened? Or was violence the plan? What was your sense that day in 50 seconds we have left? I don't know if violence was a plan, but I do know that they weren't there to attend the rally because they'd already left the rally by the time the president had started his um, speech. Um, you know, I think if you wanted to look to their intentions, you should look more at their text chats and their communications prior to the event. But from what I captured on the day, I, I can't speak. They, they were, there's only one moment where that that, that the, the sort of facade of... of of marching and protesting might have um, uh, fallen, which is there was a one of the Proud Boys called Milkshake, and Eddie Block on his um, live stream uh, captures Milkshake saying, "Well, let's go storm the Capitol." Which Nordine uh, Rufio, one of the leaders of the Proud Boys, saying, "You could keep that quiet, please, Milkshake," and and, and then we continued on marching. Oh. Well, I am curious because you've been a longtime documentarian. You've been in war zones. When you were there that day, how much did you fear for your own safety? How fearful, how scared were you? Well, I, I did get into, I, I, my camera was broken by a, a, a rioter and I did get into some scuffles. But when you have your camera, you have a function in this, in this environment. So you're not really thinking about the ramifications of, every, of, of what's going on. And, and normally in riot circumstances, the police are the adversary. And, in, and, and this time the police weren't pushing back. They weren't using water cannons or dogs or large quantities of mace and, and tear gas. The police were very passive and, and very restrained um, because I think they were so overmatched. They felt that any type of uh, pushback would have been, you know, catastrophic for them. And it ended up being catastrophic until they could hold the line at basically the upper tunnel or well, after they pushed back the protesters out towards five o'clock. Hmm. You had a chance to testify for something like eight and a half, maybe nine minutes last night. Is there anything you think Americans should know about January 6th that maybe you were not asked by any of the panelists last night? Um, I don't, I, I think the committee have laid out a, a very uh, erudite and uh, compelling roadmap to the case that they are now going to prove um, with, the, um, with their witnesses and with their investigation. So. I'd like to reserve that until after the committee has, has, has made its case, because I, I think that despite the, um, the politicization of the process, I think the committee is, is endeavoring to present the facts. And, um, and I'm, I'm interested to see how uh, that all comes together. And hopefully mm -hmm. those present, that presentation of the facts will enable uh, Congress to provide legislation that would um, stop this ever happening again. I'm curious how you're feeling inside as a journalist, as a documentarian, because now that you have seen the trajectory of events, 
um, that occurred on January 6th and afterwards. Does it make you think back to things you may have missed while you were following around members of the Proud Boys? Things that you should have paid closer attention to? Do you replay things that you observe that maybe you interpret differently now in retrospect? Oh, in hindsight, you can always criticize your technique and your interview technique because we were making a very different film um, when we were interviewing Mr. Tario. Uh, we were making a film about why America was so divided. So in retrospect, if I'd have known what I know now about the text chats and the interactions between the three strands of, of, uh, you know, of, the, of the Trump campaign's efforts to maintain uh, the President Trump as the president, I would be asking very different questions. So and I think I would go back and do everything differently. That was documentarian Nick Quested. He was one of the two witnesses who testified last night in the first of the select committee's several hearings to be coming about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR checking business. The week ends with a big drop on Wall Street. The Dow lost two and three quarters percent, 880 points today. It closed at 31,393. S&P had its worst week since January. It fell nearly three percent to finish at 3,901. NASDAQ lost more than three and a half percent to close at 11,340. It's 618. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. And the MassArt Art Museum, Boston's only free contemporary art museum, designing motherhood on view starting tomorrow, maam.massart.edu. The maple taps were flowing up in Vermont this year. The U.S. Agriculture Department is reporting Vermont maple syrup production hit a record high of more than 2.5 million gallons. That's up 46 percent from the year before. The hike was due in part to the length of the tapping season this year. It averaged 40 days. Last year, it was only 28. More maple syrup comes from Vermont than from any other state. Business news comes up on Marketplace in just about 10 minutes. This is WBUR. Lexington, a thoroughbred. Was a top athlete in his day. Geraldine Brooks' new novel, Horse, tells his story and the story of the enslaved groom who cared for him. At any moment, he can be ripped from his family. He can be ripped from the horse that he loves and has raised. Plus, we'll have the latest from the January 6th committee hearings, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. If All Things Considered helps you think smarter, support it. Give monthly, please, at WBUR.org. After a beautiful June day, we should have some clouds move in tonight, windy and dry, down around 60. Tomorrow, partly sunny, highs about 80. For Sunday, some sun, some clouds, maybe a few showers in the afternoon. Highs about 77 degrees. 75 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. 
Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Here in this newsroom, we've been having a lot of conversations about our role and responsibility as journalists when covering horrific tragedies like the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo and Tulsa. We report the facts, but how we tell these stories and what details we choose to focus on, that's something we wanted to spend some time talking about today. So we've called Danigal Young. She's a professor of communications and political science at the University of Delaware, and she studies the impact that news stories have on the public. Danigal, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks, Sasha. Your research looks in part at what you call the media's bias in favor of covering specific events and individual people, instead of looking more broadly at what leads to tragedies like mass shootings. You call it episodically framed stories versus thematically framed stories. Explain the difference between those two. Uh, There was work that came out in the early 90s by Shanto Iyengar looking at whether or not the way that news stories are told could affect the kind of attributions of responsibility that viewers or readers might make. So if you tell a news story about individual people, individual problems, is it possible that you're actually going to encourage those readers and listeners to attribute responsibility and look for solutions at the level of the individual in the story. Let's take a real life example. If we look at Uvalde, do you feel like that was covered more episodically or more thematically? I think it depends on what outlets we're talking about. I have seen a whole lot of attention paid to more thematically framed coverage that looks at the history of gun control in the United States, rates of gun violence broken out by state, etc. Uh, Those thematically framed stories contextualize what happened in Texas within a broader framework, a political framework, a cultural framework. That's thematic. However, as the story sort of began to unfold, and we did learn about failures at the level of the Uvalde police and the school police in particular, some of those stories really began to focus on the individual police, as opposed to thinking more broadly about gun violence as an epidemic in the United States. Although I say this as a news person, but the the law enforcement failure at Uvalde appears to have been so catastrophic that of course that had to be covered. That alone was a news story. So I feel that the media did both. It looked at the catastrophe of that individual case and also covered the broader issues that result in mass shootings in this country. And I would agree for those stories that tended to do both, that highlighted the failure of the police and continued to broaden the lens and highlight the fact that even if the police had responded the way that they were supposed to respond, it is likely that many of the children who died that day would have died that day. I think that's really important for us to understand, that you can do both. You can cover the specific elements, broaden the lens, and help us think contextually about what this crisis is about. 
the question that I wish that all journalists would always ask themselves is, what is going to help Americans understand not just this day, but this broader issue? The news covers specific events. And I think we're pretty good about also covering big themes like the history of guns in the U.S. and the influence of the NRA. But I feel like there's a different problem, which is we understand what the systemic problems are and they just don't get addressed. So is there some middle ground that the media is helpless to do anything about? NPR may feel that you are doing both. But I don't know that all media outlets are doing both, especially when we're talking about the televisual media. It is much more challenging to do the broader kind of journalism that we're talking about because there is a bias in favor of visual elements. And legislation and history don't have a lot of visual elements. And I think that you're right. There is this sort of political intransigence, a lack of willingness, especially on the part of Republicans, to allow anything to move forward on this front. And I, but I think that that also needs to be addressed. That's part of the story. That's Denegal Young. She's a professor of communications and political science at the University of Delaware. Thank you. Thanks, Sasha. For more than a year, federal prosecutors have said the Proud Boys played a key role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Several Proud Boys have been charged with seditious conspiracy. They have pleaded not guilty. Well, at Thursday's hearing of the Congressional Committee investigating the attack, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney said intelligence had identified plans to, quote, invade and occupy the Capitol. And she singled out the group's role in those plans. In our hearings to come, we will show specifically how a group of Proud Boys led a mob into the Capitol building on January 6th. NPR's Tom Dreisbach has this look at the committee's investigation into this extremist group. On Thursday, Congresswoman Cheney suggested that the Proud Boys led that mob with the implicit support of Donald Trump. To build that case, she went back to the 2020 presidential debate when Trump was asked to condemn the Proud Boys and said this. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell Congressional you what, investigators I'll tell you asked a Proud Boy named Jeremy Bertino, a.k.a. Noble Beard, about that moment. Would you say that Proud Boys numbers increased after the stand back, stand by comment? Exponentially. I'd say tripled, probably. Then on December 19th, 2020, Trump tweeted that there would be a big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Will be wild, Trump tweeted. Here's Cheney again. The tweet led to the planning for what occurred on January 6th, including by the Proud Boys, who ultimately led the invasion of the Capitol and the violence on that day. Yeah, just for awareness, be advised, there's probably about 300 uh, Proud Boys. They're marching eastbound towards the United States Capitol. The committee showed footage of Proud Boys with the front line of rioters who knocked over bike racks set up around the Capitol and allowed a massive mob to surround the building. Police used flashbang grenades and pepper spray to try to stop the rioters, but they were overrun. The committee showed footage then of Proud Boy Dominic Pozzola allegedly using a stolen police shield to bash open a Capitol window. Breaking that window open allowed the very first group of rioters to climb inside the building, forcing the panicked evacuation of Congress. A key question for the committee is were there more direct links between the Proud Boys and the Trump team? We've known that former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio has been close to Roger Stone, a longtime Trump advisor. Two days before the riot, Tarrio was arrested in D.C. for burning a church's Black Lives Matter flag. And Trump advisor Steve Bannon said on his podcast that he tried to help get Tarrio out of jail ahead of January 6th. 
I don't know those guys really, but I got to tell you, we put calls out last night trying to put bail up for the guy. It's just not acceptable. Guy it's comes outrageous. To guy comes into town to protest. I mean, come on. Stone has denied all wrongdoing. Bannon's spokesperson and his attorney did not respond to our requests for comment. Thursday's hearing did not provide new evidence of possible links. On CNN, Jake Tapper asked committee chair Benny Thompson if that was coming. Are there going to be witnesses that describe actual conversations between these extremist groups and anyone in Trump's orbit? Yes. There will be? Yes. Congressional investigators interviewed leaders of the Proud Boys and the extremist group the Oath Keepers under subpoena. When the committee continues its televised hearings next week, we may hear exactly what they had to say. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. This is NPR News. A reminder, if you're heading to Logan Airport this weekend, tonight marks the start of a major renovation project that will close the aging Sumner Tunnel on weekends through next February. The tunnel that carries traffic from East Boston to Government Center will shut down tonight at 11 o'clock. It'll reopen at 5 o'clock Monday morning. Drivers are encouraged to find alternate routes or take public transit instead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. And Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration. babson.edu slash part-time. 